0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, we're happy to bring you another report from the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology, or SICB, which is an AIBS member organization. For this show, we chatted with presenters from SICB's 2019 annual meeting, which was held this past January in Tampa. We hope that hearing from these presenters will whet your appetite for more, and it's worth pointing out that now is a great time to register for SickBee's next annual meeting, which is going to be in January of 2020 in Austin, Texas. I'll put a link to that one in the show notes, but please be sure to register as soon as you possibly can to take advantage of discounted pricing. And we'll get started in this episode with Dr. Carol Fastbinder-Orth, who talked to me about honeybees, and in particular, what happens when honeybees get sick. Let's go to the interview. Dr. or thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Okay, so I was hoping we could chat just a little bit about your presentation at sickbee uh, and I understand that it was about bees, honeybees in particular?
1: Correct. So I study honeybee viral infections and honeybee health in general, and so the focus of the presentation and the focus of the research in my lab is to understand honeybee health uh, different dynamics of it and how it relates to colony collapse disorder, colony loss, and an understanding of disease dynamics along the way.
0: And I'm, I'm sure that many of our listeners will have heard of colony collapse disorder before, but, but just briefly, kind of, you know, what is that phenomenon and, and what's going on?
1: Yeah, so the phenomenon was first identified a little over a decade ago. And it is kind of as the name implies, collapse disorder. So it's one in which bees, a colony suddenly that maybe a week or a couple weeks ago looked apparently fine, now is devoid of worker bees. Sometimes a queen is left behind, often honey still remains in the colony, uh, but they have suddenly collapsed. Often we see it in, uh, in the, kind of these temperate areas of the world more in like late August, September, or October is when you see it. And it's a disorder, meaning there are multiple, uh, you know, like a syndrome, kind of multiple causative factors involved.
0: And I would imagine disease being one of those.
1: Yes. Yeah. So there have been several different, especially viruses, uh, some fungal infections that have been implicated. A lot of, I mean, it's, it's multifactorial, which I know we'll, we'll get to here, but uh, we see that there are viruses that are transmitted by a parasitic arthropod called varroa mites that have been implicated at least at the final stages of this collapse. But there's also pesticide exposure, habitat quality, diet that are also implicated as well.
0: And, and I noted in your abstract, at least, that um, this is somewhat difficult to study. Um, that's uh, viruses and bees in particular. Correct. Now, why is that?
1: yeah so when one is trying to understand a pathogen and host pathogen or host vector pathogen in this case with the rural mites, whenever one is studying those dynamics, you have to be able it's very important to be able to understand at the ecological level, the colony the environment level, but to be able to understand some mechanisms, you have to be able to isolate the pathogen and be able to do some experiments where you're understanding the direct impacts of these pathogens. Part of the problem with honeybee viruses is that we don't have a good culturing, like isolation system for honeybee viruses. A lot of viruses have to be cultured, cell culture, uh, in a lab, in a flask. And then you can add, you know, grow a virus in it, isolate it from there. But that's very difficult. We don't have a good system for honeybee viruses, so they're difficult to grow in isolation uh, and then be able to experimentally manipulate them to understand what's happening.
0: Okay, so I guess the next obvious question then is, what's the way around that? How do you study these viruses if you can't rely on traditional means?
1: Yeah, so there are many. Well, one thing is, there's many viruses that infect honeybees, and so I, in my lab, we are studying a virus that naturally infects honeybees called paralysis virus. It's related to many other honeybee-specific viruses as well. And this particular one you can grow in cell culture. You can isolate it. You can quantify it. And then you can compare mechanisms of disease of this infection uh, with physiological parameters and, and other aspects. So, so right now I'm using a different model virus. But in the future, if we have a better cell culture system uh, or you know, maybe a a different type of virus uh, that we find that you can grow somewhere. I think it's a matter of of time and resources, and eventually we'll have a better system for studying them.
0: Okay, and um, specifically about the presentation, what were the results that you were presenting there?
1: Yeah, so what I was presenting at SICB uh, was looking at the impacts of viral infection, in this case, this virus called cricoprolsis virus, looking at the impacts of this infection on honeybee physiology and behavior. And so what we found was that this viral infection caused the bees, at least from a hormonal sense, caused them to apparently age more quickly. So in honeybee colonies, if you look at the worker bees, their age, uh, there's a lot of interplay, hormonal interplay with their age, determining the activities in the hive. And these hormones, the one we studied, was called vitellogenin. And it really correlates with, okay, are they nurse bees? Are they foraging, which are older bees? And what we found was that the virus basically makes bees that are supposed to be young, kind of hormonally, uh, they age more quickly. And the implications for that is that, okay, if you take a baby bee, and hormonally it has changed their stress, their response to infection, And it becomes more like an older forager bee that's going to induce them to leave the hive uh, and likely may be involved in something called altruistic suicide where they leave the hive and don't come back.
0: So this is a case in which the bees are leaving because they've been, you know, artificially hormonally aged. Yes. And so the beekeeper would approach the hive and they just wouldn't be there.
1: Right, yeah, and so that's you know part of what we're trying to do is understand, okay, the, the bees are suddenly gone, and that's hard, you know, kind of in a, in a colony autopsy type of sense. That's difficult uh, to measure when you don't have the bees there to be able to figure out what happened. Uh, I grew up on a honeybee farm. Actually, my parents are commercial beekeepers, and so I, I grew up with bees and have kind of seen transitions over the de- decades in terms of colony health and so colony collapse is very difficult because if there are no bees left uh, you have to really do a lot of forensics really in terms of understanding what's happened
0: and I assume of course that the ultimate goal being to understand what's going on and then potentially find some way of preventing it
1: correct yes so what Uh, So I I told you about the patellagenin, but we also are looking at spatial movements and understanding, okay, if we have infection, we have uh, changes in physiological, hormonal factors, how does that affect their movement? with the idea being trying to build a model that is both descriptive and then also predictive. Yes, so that, okay, we understand this is what's happening, and if we see these factors changing at a certain stage, likely this colony may collapse by a certain point in time. So I think unless we understand it better in the process of disease, uh, we won't be able to mitigate that until we understand it better, I believe.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So it's a case of just you know being able to model what you think is going to happen, um, yeah. and then, then the next step along in, in the research would be to figure out how to prevent it. Correct. Cool. I hope we can change gears uh, just a little bit and talk about the meeting itself. Sure. Um, how did you find it? Do you attend any other meetings?
1: Uh, yes, I do. So I've attended SICPE for, uh, I don't know, over a decade, I suppose. And so I have been drawn to this particular meeting because of the diversity of biological topics covered, but also the inclusive nature of it. And so I bring students with me. I bring undergraduate students with me uh, every time as a faculty member that I've attended. And so the support for student research and the inclusive environment for different approaches to research, I think, is a very welcoming environment.
0: doctor Fassbinder, Fasbond-Or, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: All right. Next up, we had Andrew Schultz, who is a Ph.D. student at George Institute of Technology. And we talked about something that's a little bit bigger than a bee. Thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Uh, no problem. I'm uh, excited to be here.
0: Okay, great. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about elephant trunks. Um, and, you know, I-, I would traditionally think of them as being a very long and unusual nose. Um, but I, I get the sense that you're willing to disabuse me of that notion.
2: Yeah, so uh, they've a lot of people think of them as the elephant's nose, which uh, they actually are, but if you think of the as- actual musculature of an elephant trunk, it's much more similar to that of uh, the human tongue or actually octopus arms. And so these are things that are actually commonly called muscular hydrostats, which are these purely musculature... Um, appendages that have no bone structure. Uh, And so the three common examples are elephant trunks, octopus arms, and tongues. And they have the ability to do a lot of different movements, including elongation and shortening and bending. And they can do all of this while basically conserving the volume inside of the appendage.
0: So I I would gather from an engineering standpoint, this is pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, it's and um, one of the main engineering applications of it is uh, traditionally a lot of people think of robots like the robot dance. You know, you have all of these really rigid parts or like the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz. However, a new uh, kind of uh, technique in looking at robotics is something called soft robots, which are these robotic manipulators that are made of soft material that don't have these really hard, rigid parts. And so they're able to maneuver in um, much more... Uh, enclosed environments so you think of applications in such as when you have uh, entering a confined space from possibly uh um and being able to maneuver through these tight crevices in this confined space using a robot that's inspired by something like an elephant trunk
0: so yeah you're much better in those situations uh being more like an elephant trunk and less like um you know R2D2 or C3PO it, it,
2: exactly yes and um that's something that the elephant uh i mean uh baby elephants actually take quite a few months to actually uh understand how to use uh their trunk so in you know, elephants use it for everything from uh sniffing they use it to communicate they suck up water um and they pick up food uh using their trunk and people have also seen that they actually use their trunks to discipline their young when they're misbehaving, so they use it for a very, very wide range of capabilities.
0: Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the study that you described, or the, or the research that you described at the Sikkubee presentation? It was elephant trunks picking up a barbell.
2: Barbell, yeah. So uh, we um, at Georgia Tech, um, myself and my advisor David, who we work closely with Atlanta Zoo, or the Zoo, Zoo. Atlanta, as they're as named, to um, conduct experiments. And what we want to see is we want to see so what are some of the limitations of the elephant trunk, and how do they perform these wide ranges of tasks? Uh, so what we did is we went to the zoo, and we, um, we put a barbell facility, so kind of like a human when they do um, have a squat rack, we put one of those in front of the elephant. And then by uh, drawing a chalk line on the side of the trunk, we taught uh, Kelly, who's the name of the um, African elephant that we did the experiments with, Uh, Kelly uh, wrapped around the trunk and lifted and using um, image tracking software, we were able to determine how uh, the elephant was able to wrap around different weights of barbells. And so we kept increasing the weights of the barbells to the point where um, Kelly could barely uh, reach anymore. So if you think of comparably to a human, right, is we're looking for what is that like one rep maximum that a human can achieve. And so we were wanting to see that for an elephant wrapping around a barbell,
0: okay, and and I'm gonna guess that the interesting part of this is more of the how than the how strong, uh, but my curiosity is peaked. Uh, how strong is an elephant's trunk? What can what can an elephant lift? What can it bench?
2: So what we saw with wrapping is an elephant um, can pick up around uh, 65 to 70 kilograms, and. Um, What was really interesting about that is that was, uh, if you've ever seen like an elephant wrapping around an object, right, that seems like a lot of weight. However, when they use their um, tusks, their whole body, and push, they can push over um, leaves, or sorry, not leaves, uh, trees that are 500 kilograms and above. So they're really, really powerful animals. However, just using that musculature, they're still able to pick up quite heavy weights.
0: That's interesting. Is, that, is, is the differential a result of the fact that you know, they're, they're lifting the barbell further away from their body and they don't have the leverage?
2: Exactly. So, so um, if you think of when you're, when you're lifting weights, right, is um, if you're using your shoulders, the further away you move the weight away from your arm, the harder it is going to be. And so that's the reason a lot of uh, weightlifting techniques, the, um, your arms are very close to you in terms of lifting. But as you uh, move that moment arm away, it gets more difficult to do. So that's why we believe the elephant was um, having some uh, difficulties lifting uh, heavier weights further away.
0: Yeah, but still, you know, 70 kilograms uh, lifted away from your body is not too shabby, and it's it's not something that anyone I know can do with their nose.
2: Uh, that is very true. So, I mean, it was, and a fun story about it is Kelly actually was, uh, the elephant we were doing experiments with, was having so much fun, uh, she actually... Threw the barbell down um, during one of our last experiments and broke the entire setup. Oh no! So uh, to think about the power of what an elephant can achieve, uh, you think about going to a gym and how many times those weights get dropped. Uh, Kelly, in the course of just doing 40 or 50 lifts, uh, threw a barbell down and um, the barbell uh, went through about an inch of uh, um, an inch of steel to break uh, to break the whole setup. So. That kind of ended our experiments.
0: That's pretty impressive, but uh, but you know, kind of sounds like one of the better bad outcomes you could have with an elephant in a gym.
2: Uh, that that is very true. I don't think uh, anybody should try try to compete with an elephant in a gym.
0: No, I'll, I'll refrain. Um, so, so what kind of things do you learn about the way that elephants lift? You know, what are kind of the uh, mechanical or engineering uh, discoveries that one makes when one looks at an elephant's trunk?
2: So, what we've really discovered is that they um, uh, they use wrapping in um, a very distinct way. Of when they're trying to wrap around uh, heavier weights, they'll wrap more of their trunk um, around the weight. So, if you think about uh, if you think about this, just getting a more um, an increased contact surface around uh, the barbell. And so from an engineering standpoint, um, that does make sense. However, we found that for lower weights, that elephant is actually like overcorrecting. so is actually doing more than they need to be in order in order to actually lift the barbell. So um, this was a preliminary study in terms of uh, we wanted to see what are some of these wrapping techniques. And we have uh, further experiments planned to uh, look into more in-depth uh, um, capabilities the elephant has in terms of looking at things like the elephant maneuvering around an obstacle field and how they're able to actually manipulate their trunk to move around obstacles.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And, and we'd love to chat about them in the future as well. I was hoping we could change gears and talk just a bit about uh, the sickbee meeting itself. How did you find it? What was the experience like?
2: Uh, so I absolutely loved it. So um, I'm a mechanical engineer, and um, the previous conferences that I had been to had been mainly engineering-focused, and I found um, when I was in Tampa Bay over the course of four or five days, it was a very welcoming conference, uh, and it was very uh, – a lot of the biologists and people that I was meeting for the first time were very uh, gracious in giving me a lot of constructive criticism about my project, but also giving me a lot of um, connections. And uh, even one of the people I met for the first time ended up actually sending me a, um, a textbook on elephants, which was kind of a cool little um, gift that I got for my first uh, visit. And then I also, uh, through Bee, they actually give you the opportunity to have a mentor. And so I was able to actually have a, a mentor who had been going to SICB for four or five times before to kind of help me understand the conference. Um, but I absolutely loved uh, loved Tampa Bay and loved getting to know other biologists there.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I hope they'll see you there in the future as well.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to go, uh, go every year. So it's easily been one of my favorite conferences this year.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much for joining me.
2: Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the invitation. It's been awesome. All
0: right. And moving right along. Next up, I chatted about caterpillars with Dr. Guy Levy of Tufts University. Dr. Levy, thank you very much for joining me today.
3: Thank you, James. Good morning.
0: So to get going, you study the crawling behavior of caterpillars, uh, Manduca caterpillars in particular. And I was just wondering very generally, how do they get around?
3: We're currently studying the crawling in the caterpillar of the Manduca sexta, perhaps more familiar by its non-scientific name, the tobacco hornworm. To locomote, or as you said, to get around, this caterpillar uses both its six legs, and it's five pairs of what we call prolegs. These are fleshy structures on the ventral side of its abdomen, resembling each short telescope and, practic- and are practically used as legs. But they are not legs, they are prolegs. So that's how it gets around.
0: Okay, and how does one study that kind of question? You know, how do you figure out how they locomote?
3: So uh, there are various ways to study caterpillar caterpillar locomotion depending on the the objective of the study. Some studies, for example, are focused on understanding the interface between the nervous system and the muscles. In other words, they are interested in knowing which form of signals are generated by the nervous system to activate the muscles and how do the muscles receive, perceive, and interpret these signals. But other studies, which are more relevant to our discussion here, Aim at characterizing the kinematic parameters of a movement. These parameters essentially describe the fine details of the movement, which leg moves when and at what speed, how high and how fast is each leg lifted when stepping, what is the traveling distance of each leg in stepping, and things like that. In many studies of this sort, the animal is being video recorded while moving, and later, points of interest, the ones on the animal's body, are labeled on video images, so the movement can be tracked and analyzed.
0: Okay, and let's talk about your SICB presentation in particular, what was the aim of the method that you developed?
3: Okay, so in our project, our project was designed to develop a robust and reliable method that would be suitable for studying and characterizing kinematic parameters of crawling caterpillars. To do that, we developed a very sophisticated setup that can detect and follow the three-dimensional position of specific points on the caterpillar's body and use this information to automatically analyze the stepping with very high precision, all in real time. To create our setup, we first adopted the Vicon, which is a commercial device designed to track human motion in order to embed special effects in films and video games. Since the caterpillar is much smaller than a person, it took us a lot of time and effort and also a great deal of creativity to adopt the Vicon to be used in our project so it can track the motion of the caterpillar. So we succeeded in soldering microscopic infrared LEDs to create some kind of uh, an infrared light emitting suit that we stitched onto the cuticle of the caterpillar. So once we succeeded in configuring the Vulcan to detect our markers the tiny LEDs, we developed a custom-made computer software that continuously ob- obtains data that is generated by the Vulcan, the positions of the markers, and uses this this data both for controlling the experiment, as I will explain in a moment, and for analyzing the data. Now, to keep the caterpillar inside the field of vision of the Viking cameras throughout the experiment, we assembled a circular treadmill in which the caterpillar could comfortably crawl. The treadmill is hooked to a motor that can rotate it and that is controlled by the computer on which our custom-made software is running. The software always knows the position of the prolegs, so it can calculate the position of the caterpillar inside the treadmill, as well as its orientation, meaning the slope of its body. Is it crawling up the hill, down the hill, on a plane? The software is using this information to decide when and to which direction to rotate the treadmill in order to keep the animal in the desired location and orientation.
0: Okay, and you know, how, can this, uh, how can research studies benefit from using the method? Um, and I guess what are some potential applications of the studies that would use the method that you developed?
3: Okay, so first I'll say that understanding natural motor control strategies, meaning motor control strategies that are found in nervous systems of animals, is used as a source of inspiration for the design of artificial control units, and in particular, understanding natural strategies in soft animals lacking articulations can be used as a source of inspiration for building soft robotic manipulators that have advantages in mazy or unpredicted environments. Such robots can be used to assist in, for example, in medical procedures or in rescue missions. And the beauty of it is that our setup can be easily altered for studying many aspects of locomotion. And also, it can be easily adapted for studying locomotions in various animals.
0: Well, we'll certainly look forward to hearing more applications of the Vicon motion sensor system in the future. Dr. Levy, thank you very much for joining me today. Okay. Thank you very much, James. All right. And next up, I chatted with Valentina Alossom from the University of Nevada, Reno, and she told me about zebra finches and their responses to light of various temperatures, which I'll let her explain. Thank you very much for joining me today.
4: Yeah, I'm happy to be here.
0: So your presentation at SICB was about zebra finches and light. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about it.
4: Yeah. So um, my research is about the impacts of artificial light at night on birds and in order to study this in the lab, um, because light, artificial light in nature um, nowadays is, is kind of comes in a package deal of, of urbanization. So you also have the noise, and you also have um, cars and people everywhere. So in order to study artificial light in the lab, um, I can isolate uh, the impacts of artificial light, and we use zebra finches because they're a really common kind of bird model to use for these kinds of questions. Um, and I guess uh, my specific question was to uh, was understanding how LEDs in different color temperatures might be more or less disruptive for the birds.
0: Okay, and let's talk about color temperature for just a moment. So this would be the difference between, say, what would be called typically cold fluorescent light that, you know, you'd see in an old office building, um, you know, versus the, the warm light that one might get from an old incandescent bulb or something like that.
4: Yeah, definitely. Like the, the best example of a warm te- color temperature is just like a candle. You know, it's like the ultimate warm color temperature. Although color temperature doesn't actually have anything to do with um, physical temperature, it's just a way to describe the color. So, yeah, if you go to Home Depot right now um, and look at all the LED light bulbs, you can pick between a, a huge range. I think they go down to like a 1,000 a and up to 7,000 Kelvin color temperatures. And they even describe them as, you know, warm, relaxing versus cool, um, alert, sun mimicking.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And so the purpose of the research was to figure out um, if the different colors of light or the different color temperatures of light had different effects on the zebra finch's behavior.
4: Yeah. And and people have started figuring this out in humans um, because our photoreceptors the photoreceptors in our retinas, and our, and actually these are the same photoreceptors in birds, um, because they're so well conserved across vertebrates. Um, but these photoreceptors uh, have uh, different, so they're sensitive to different wavelengths of light, and in particular, they're they're very sensitive to this short, uh, four hundred and eighty nanometer wavelength, which is a kind of bluish white light, and so. People have found um, in human studies that if, you, if you're working under this, you know, white, bluish light, you're more likely to be alert, more likely to, to be awake. Um, versus if, if you have the warmer kind of yellower lights in your house, it's, it's more relaxing for you. And so it's, it's the same idea for the birds.
0: Okay, so these things can have big effects that, you know, that might not have been foreseen originally. Now, what effects did the different lights have on the finches?
4: Yeah, my finches, um, they were up all night, so I, I measured activity by monitoring how much they were hopping around, and the birds under the cool color temperature lights were were much more active at the night, so they were, they were pretty much awake while the other birds were asleep. And then I also measured stress hormones, these hormones called glucocorticoids, and these are metabolic hormones. They're often used as a proxy for physiological stress, but they also just might rise if the birds are more active or working harder. And after three weeks of exposure, this, this hormone was elevated for the birds. Um, and only under the cool color lights, not the warmer color temperature ones.
0: Okay, so what kind of implications does that have for, you know, what we might do as people as we're, you know, uh, urbanizing increasingly over various areas and, you know, having our lights on all night?
4: I think for humans, uh, there's some real implications because we are almost trapping ourselves in these really, really bright, intense lighting scenes. You know, when we work late hours, um, even me, you know, as a grad student, just working at my computer screen into the night um, can really can really have impacts. And what happens is these wavelengths, when they stimulate our photoreceptors, they're not just keeping us awake um, or, you know, giving me a rest, less restful sleep. They're actually ca- starting this cascade of physiological effects um, because humans and birds and all animals have, have this circadian rhythm that is entrained by artificial light. And so what starts out as noticing that the birds are awake might have long-term physiological effects such as disrupting metabolism cycles um and in humans because um some of the early studies came out of these workers who work night shifts and like i said are exposed to really intense long hours of nightlight we found higher levels of cardiovascular disease, um, obesity, even certain kinds of cancers in humans. So for the birds, you know, they they aren't working the night shift or looking at a laptop, but they are just flying around passively when we have streetlights up and uh, there's still noise out there too. And there's a lot of factors that these birds are having to deal with now. And so I'm really interested in in understanding how this kind of more dim level of nightlight maybe maybe they're not sitting in an office all night but if they are trying to sleep in a tree and there's a lamppost nearby how is that dim level affecting them in a more subtle way and how can these subtle effects that i'm seeing maybe translate into long-term effects on on their fitness on their health um or overall you know how their the population's um well-being and evolution
0: is there an implication that perhaps we should be choosing uh, our street light technologies to have uh, you know a warmer color temperature so that our ecological footprint is lower or smaller
4: yeah you know I definitely would recommend to anyone buying uh, new light bulbs for their patios if you want to buy LEDs because they're super cost and energy efficient which is really great um, but because we have this option to pick a color temperature of light, I would say my research suggests that the warmer color temperatures is a better option for the birds. And now I can't say that's the same for all animals. And so um, with caution, definitely, because all kinds of nightlights will attract insects, which then indirectly are, are attracting insectivores like birds and other animals. Um, and, you know, there's there's tons of other tacks out there that I, I don't study. But I, I would say for our own sake and and for the birds, the warmer color temperatures... Are a little bit less disruptive than the pure white fluorescent light uh, type lights.
0: Well, that, that's an absolutely great finding. Uh, thank you for sharing it with us. And I was wondering if I could just last ask about uh, the meeting experience itself. You know, kind of what did you think of it? Did you enjoy uh, being at Sigbee?
4: Yeah, this was my first time presenting at SIGB. Um It was my second year as a PhD student, and I, I really love that conference. I think it's it's such a cool um, collection of diverse research, um, which you don't always get at conferences, which can sometimes be specific. Um, so it was really neat to talk to people from all different uh, backgrounds and all different research areas um, about, you know, some people who have expertise in lights, some people who have expertise in birds or some others uh, in hormones. Um, and I think that's, that's what makes it really unique and really exciting.
0: All right, Valentina, thank you very much for joining me today.
4: Yeah. Thanks for this
0: interview. Glad to chat. And last but not least, I caught up with Andrea Rummel of Brown University, and we close out this SICB special podcast talking about bats and their wings and what makes them special. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about your presentation at SICB? It was on bat wings, if I'm not mistaken.
5: Yeah. Um, so... Bat wing, bats are really spectacular animals, um, first of all. Um, and bats are, are spectacular because they are mammals that can fly. Um, they're the only mammals that are capable of powered flight. And they achieve this using um, modified mammalian forelimbs. So their wings are basically, um, basically arms. They have the same structures that we have in our arms. Um, but to facilitate flight, they have like greatly elongated their fingers, Um, they've suspended all of their fingers, uh, the elbow, um, the hind limb, the leg in this membrane that is is basically skin. Um, And so they've got, they're they're weird looking, they've got these weird arms that that function as wings. Um, And what I'm really interested in is that um, kind of over the course of the evolution of this wing, bats Lost much of the um, skin connective tissue and fat that um, typically kind of overlies the muscles in in mammalian appendages and so if you look at a bat wing, you can see the muscles um, and you might think like if you look at a human arm, like you can see like the bulge of the biceps and and you know like muscles in the forearm that are bulging. Um, but when you look at a bat wing, you can literally see the muscles under the skin. You can see vessels, you can see nerves, Um, it's really really weird to see. Um, And so one of the the focuses of of my PhD research and what I talked about at SICB is this idea that if bat wings are so exposed, um, maybe they're operating um, at cold temperatures. Um, And that's really remarkable because um, muscles don't work very well in the cold, and so as soon as you drop, um, say, 10 degrees Celsius, the muscle is going to be operating, um, at much slower speeds. Um, and you can imagine that that, that that makes a big difference for locomotion. If you're trying to run, if you're trying to fly, if your muscles aren't working as fast as you need them to, you're not going to run as fast as you want to, or you're not going to fly as well as you want to.
0: And they don't have the insulation that, you know, say a human being would have around the musculature to kind of keep it the same temperature as the body's core.
5: Exactly. Yeah. So imagine like looking down at your own arm, um, you can see skin and like maybe you can see like a bluish tint of veins or arteries underneath the skin. But if you look at a bat wing, like you just see red muscle. Um, And so they're really lacking any insulation at all on their wing muscles.
0: And I would imagine they also have a lot of airflow going past their, you know, flying at night and all that.
5: Exactly, yeah. So so not only do they have like zero insulation on their wings, they're also flying, so they're like constantly moving moving wind across the wings. Um, and also just since their wings are so big and so long, um, it's really hard to, to heat them up because you would have to send, you know, warm blood out to those um, like really kind of distant regions of the wing, um, and that's really expensive energetically. So bats don't want to do that because um, they have to keep their bodies warm. Um, and so they end up keeping their bodies warm at, at the expense of their wings. Um, and that's something that, like, all warm-blooded animals do, so we do that too. So, like, your hands get cold in the winter before your core does, um, but we're not trying to maintain a kind of really high-performance locomotion with our, with our finger muscles, right? Bats are trying to fly. Um, they have to flap their wings ten times a second to stay in flight, and they're doing it with, with really cold wing muscles.
0: Okay, so how do they do that? Do we know yet?
5: Yeah, well, so that's kind of the other half of, of the talk that I gave at SICB. Um We established kind of on the one hand that bats are flying with really cold muscles. So it turns out that like if you look at um, a core muscle, a core wing muscle, the pectoralis, which sits right in the chest, both in bats and humans, and compare it to a forearm muscle. The forearm muscle is like 20 degrees Fahrenheit colder, 12 degrees Celsius colder than, than that pectoralis muscle. Um, which, again, is, is really a big difference when we're talking about muscle performance and, like, body temperatures in warm-blooded animals. Um, and so we also looked at the kind of intrinsic properties of these muscles, so how quickly the muscles can contract and relax at various temperatures. Um, and these kind of rates of contraction are, are really important metrics when we actually think about how the muscles are functioning inside the animals. And what what we found was that the pectoralis muscle, which is the warm one, it's big and it's close to the core, it's super sensitive to temperature. So if you drop temperature by 10 degrees, you get um, contractile velocities that are more than half as slow as uh, what happens at body temperature. Um, So the pectoralis does not do well at cold temperatures. But if you take that forearm muscle that's out in the wing, it's cold during flight. Um, that forearm muscle is less sensitive to temperature. So if you drop the forearm muscle temperature by 10 degrees, it does a much better job at maintaining its performance than the pectoralis does. Um, So we think that these are some kind of intrinsic physiological adaptations to this pretty extreme gradients in temperature across the wing.
0: Well, as somebody who's you know tried to tie my shoes, um, in the extreme cold when I was camping and failed miserably, I wouldn't mind having some of that myself. <laughs> um, do do we know how they do it yet or is that work still on the horizon?
5: So that work is still on the horizon, um, but work in, in other animals has shown that um, one of the major players in adaptation to cold in muscle is probably uh, myosin, the myosin ATPase, which is one of the building blocks of muscle um, and it's basically an, an enzyme that is actually affecting the movement, so it's, it's, it's what's causing kind of that biochemical to mechanical energy transformation that makes muscles so interesting and awesome. Um, but people have shown in the past that there are different kinds of myosins that have different temperature sensitivities. Um, so we think that bats have um, different varieties of, of this enzyme, myosin, in their um, core muscles, their warm muscles, um, and their, their forearm muscles or their colder muscles.
0: Well, that's really cool. And I'm certain we'll look for more as uh, more of that information becomes available. Thank you very much for joining me.
5: Thank you.
0: And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just one last reminder, if you haven't already, now's a great time to sign up for the next SICBI meeting. You'll find a link in the show notes. Thank you and talk to you next time.